Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grovels into punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, an incredible guest from the brand, author, I should say, of the brand new book, well, not brand new, but new book, definitely still new, I'm Not Holding Your Coat, Nancy Barrill is here, and this is an incredible conversation with someone with an unbelievable perspective on the the genesis and the birth of American hardcore on the East Coast. And we will talk about all this in a second and more. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedatapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Tristan, thank you for all the hard work you do. And he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you know that you enjoy this podcast that we do here on on well, several times a week now, generally several times a week. Um, you can also support the podcast by subscribing to it and rating it on your platform of choice or by heading over to patreon.com slash turned out a punk. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone that does do that over there. It really does help keep this show going. And uh, you can check out some of the fun stuff we do over on that thing. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible with the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just don't do it out of your own pocket and help me cover the cost of doing this thing. And for that, I am eternally grateful to them. Thank you very much for that. Uh, oh, oh, also I play in a band. We're called fucked up. We will be going on tour with a band called faith. No more. You may have heard of them, uh, in the month of September, you can check online for the dates for those shows. I'm very excited to be playing those shows. They're outdoors and stuff and should be very fun. And then hopefully we'll be going on tour in January to play some songs off of, well, the whole album of David comes to life which will be reissued by Matador Records. Also, we have Year of the Horse, a 90-minute long song uh, that we... Uh, I didn't write it. You know, I sing it, but I, I'm very proud to be involved in it because it is an incredible song. Uh, you know, and I didn't write it, so I can say that. You know, I, I, I really I really do mean that. I think it's the best thing we've ever done. Uh, and you can find that on Tank Crimes Records right now and order that. I think it's going to be dropping December 3rd. So weird now with this vinyl, <laughs> these vinyl delays and vinyl shortages and all that kind of crap. Uh, but yeah, so uh, hopefully we'll see you when we come to your town. And uh, thank you for supporting that band as well. All right, on to today's show. Today on the show, Nancy Burrell is here. And Nancy is the author of the brand new memoir called I'm Not Holding Your Coat, My Bruises and All Memoir of Punk Rock Rebellion. And this book is on bazillion points. It is a fantastic read. I strongly recommend it uh, for anyone of all ages. It's, it's a fantastic book, and it's written in a way that it can be enjoyed by even some younger people as well. Uh, it, and, and for older folks like myself, this thing is an essential read. Uh, I don't. I don't want to get too into it. You got to read this book, and we get into some of the stories now on the show. Nancy has an incredible perspective, and she is super cool. If you want to find her on social media, you can find her uh, at Nancy Burrell on Instagram. And uh, yeah, I strongly recommend following her. She's a really cool person, and I was very stoked to get the chance to talk to her. So I, I don't really. I don't have to ramble on anymore. Really, just other than to say, 
get this book. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And that is it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Nancy Burrill on Turned Out a Punk. Nancy, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thanks for having me. Well, as I was just telling you off air, I am a massive fan of your book. Uh, and I think it's a book I'm I'm trying desperately. My my eldest son will not take any music advice or any, you know, cultural advice from me at this point, but I'm desperately trying to get him to read your book because I think it's such an important book, not even because of the music you're covering for young people to read, but I just think because of like empowerment and about how it's just about you know, the great thing about punk rock is how it gave young people voice and a chance for young people to kind of take control. Absolutely. 100%. It's the whole reason I got into it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I got to start this off though, the way they all start off, which is Nancy, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across it? Yeah. So, you know, my dad was a Marine. I went to Catholic school. So I faced, you know, what I felt was a lot of oppression at the time. And music was always an escape. And so I read, you know, I used to get Circus Magazine and Cream and Hit Parader. And I had some older friends who turned me on to music. I kind of started out liking like David Bowie and Roxy Music and Alice Cooper, T-Rex bands like that. And then gradually, you know, punk rock sort of kind of emerged, you know, with bands like Patti Smith and the Ramones and Iggy Pop. And I saw Iggy probably in, it was 1977 with uh, Blondie opening. And then after that, I was all in, you know, 100%, yeah. you know. I love that era, like where it's kind of like before punk really kind of kicks off, but it's like, there's, there's this sort of wave of kids that were waiting for punk rock. People have described it as almost waiting for it because, Agreed. Agreed. you know, the stuff you're looking for, like that's the, that's the direct precursors to what would come next. Right. Exactly. Those were like my gateway drugs, you know, Alice Cooper, you know, bands mm -hmm. like that, even, even kiss to a certain extent, you know, yeah. when they first came out, you know, those were all the bands that sort of, you know, I always liked the kind of more dangerous side of music and, um, you know, that was my thing. And live performances. I loved going to shows. Like I went to shows constantly from the time I was allowed to go to shows at probably age 15. And I just saw anybody who came into town and, you know, was kind of forming my own opinions as I, you know, saw them. <laughs> yeah. You've got an incredible list in the book of the first shows that you went, to, you went to, and I was going through that and kind of being like, Oh, uh, who was that band? Who was that band? Like, I think you saw the Reds early on as well, like the Philadelphia band. I, I, I might have. Yeah, I might have. I don't remember them as distinctly as some of the other bands that I saw, but I think they might have opened for someone that I saw. Well, who were some of the early local bands? I mean, even pre kind of codification of it, like pre-punk rock, like Bloodless Pharaohs. I'm trying to think of some early Philadelphia bands because there is like a, a scene there, obviously. There was right a guy named Ken Queter who sort of had like a... Um, a punk sensibility about him mm -hmm. that I used to see. There was bands called a uh, band called the warm jets. There were the autistics. Um, uh, I used to go see Karen Bahari, who was kind of like a, you know, almost like a cabaret singer, but like funky, you know, <laughs> and yeah. then, you know, kind of had some stuff. So um, there was a club in town called the hot club and they booked, you know, bands from all over the world, but also a lot of local bands. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I was 
fascinated with the fact that I could see a band on stage and then like, you know, they'd be outside smoking cigarettes and I could go over and, and talk to them if I wanted to, you know, it, yeah. was really, it was really cool. Yeah. Like even early, early sort of punk stuff, you have that sort of like breaking down of that division between, you know, fan and artist, you know, you hear about Ramones coming in, just chilling with kids before and after the show. And just, that's like unheard of in music, still kind of unheard of in music. Yeah. And I loved it. I loved that. Cause I was, you know, I was fascinated by musicians and the process and just everything about it. And so being able to like connect with the musician was really, you know, and just talk to them. And it was, mm -hmm. you know, it was really cool. <laughs> I loved yeah. It. Yeah. No, I think that's the thing about punk that makes it so awesome is that it starts messing with what the, the archetype of a rock star is, you know, and starts turning it on its head. And part of that subversion is, is doing away with that pedestal, you know, and just, and it, it really is. That's the, that's almost like the lasting effect of it. I think that's, that's one of the more important things that kind of hold over from that period. I agree a hundred percent. So who are some of the early, uh, early shows that you went to like somewhere, like when you're first kind of getting into the punk, actually before even punk rock, some of your favorite shows that stuck out to you. I mean, I saw David Bowie was like, you know, probably number one on my list at the time. I was a huge, huge Bowie fan. I loved Roxy Music. I saw them a bunch. I saw Sparks, um, Patti Smith, um, Alice Cooper. Um, even I, my first concert was Rod Stewart and Faces. I think it might have even been their last tour together. Just, you know, completely blown away by it. Uh, I saw Bruce Springsteen wasn't you know, wasn't hugely a Springsteen fan, but appreciated the show that he gave his, mm -hmm. his fans. Um, I saw Blue Oyster called, I saw Bay City Rollers. <laughs> uh, one of the, one of the greatest shows I saw around that time were the tubes. Uh, the tubes were, I mean, their stage show was insane, just absolutely insane. And I can just, you know, remember being completely blown away by that. Um, I, I was lucky, man. I saw just about everybody that came through. Um, I remember the only band I didn't see that I wanted to see was probably Led Zeppelin. And uh, <laughs> I, I had tickets, you know, it was right after graduation. I had tickets to see them and and uh, Robert Plant's son died and they canceled that, you know, they canceled that tour. And, and I didn't see him. But I mean, I saw Aerosmith. I saw Jefferson Airplane. I saw Paul McCartney and Wings like I would go to anything, you know, just because it was live music and then, you know, kind of decide whether, you know, I liked it or not, you know, mm -hmm. and I didn't always like it, you know, Um it was, you know, some music, some bands that I saw, you know, did not appeal to me, but then there were a lot, you know, that I, that I did cheap trick, you know, was a band that I absolutely loved back in the day queen. Oh my God. Mm. I, you know, I mean, they could never recreate what they did on the album, but man, there was nothing like them, you know, watching Freddie at his peak, you know, it was just incredible. So, um, and I love seeing women on stage at that Rod Stewart show, Susie Quattro opened, you know? Oh, that's and awesome. For, yeah. And for a 15 year old kid, you know, like girl watching that, you know, that was mind blowing to me. And that was the same with Patti Smith and, and, uh, Blondie and, uh, uh, 
years later, Joan Jett, you know, I love seeing women on stage. That was, you know, just something that felt really empowering to me, even though I didn't have an ounce of musical talent. <laughs> there's, there's a band, is it called Helen Keller? Helen Killer? That was like a, a female fronted like punk band from Philadelphia early on. I, I, I don't know that band. No, I've never heard that band. These yeah. are all bands I've just found random singles of, but it's like really fascinating. Cause like, there isn't as you know like recorded wise as much of sort of like a defined early first wave punk scene in philadelphia so much as so as like a few years later when it's the scene that you're really heavily involved in where there is like a lot of bands like it just feels like i don't know apart from the hoosiers and or the hooters sorry and bands like that like it doesn't feel like there was as much of sort of that first wave early punk scene there. there was there was like you know there were bands like the sick kids who had a guitarist a, a female guitarist you know and um there were bands but it always seemed to me philly never got it still and i think a lot of the reason for that was because the bands didn't have money to make records and they mm. didn't they didn't have money to tour you know mm -hmm. and so it was insular and we would see the bands um but you know, maybe other people didn't as much, you know, like making a record and stuff when we decided, you know, the band that I managed to do it, uh, you know, on our own, it was expensive, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, most, most of us, we didn't have any money, you know, yeah. so, um, you know, and I, sometimes I, you know, I, I look at Al and, you know, my husband that's in SSD control, you know, and he had a dad who like, you know, was like, Oh, you want to, you know, you want to make a record? I'll lend you the money. You know, like that didn't happen in mm -hmm. Philadelphia. You know, nobody's dad was lending them any money to make a hardcore record. You know, it, it's fascinating though, how much economics plays a role in that early hardcore scene. You know, like I think Jerry a, when he was on brought up the fact that like in DC, a lot of those kids had money that they were able to come from. So that's a reason that a lot of that stuff was so well documented compared to some of the other scenes. And like, in the case of Poison Idea, he talked about how they had to, you know, find other less legal economic means of achieving capital to put out their records. Yeah. And I mean, I saw that when I moved to Boston, you know, like, I mean, I mean, Al's, you know, he's, you know, his father, blue collar background and stuff. Mm -hmm. But there were a lot of kids that came from very wealthy backgrounds and stuff and who had the means you know, to make records and stuff. And in Philly, it just seemed, you know, the bands that, you know, that I came up with, uh, Sadistic Exploits, Why Die, Autistic Behavior Informed Sources, um, Decontrol from Philly, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, you know, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I sold my high school ring to help make the first Sadistic Exploits record. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, and, and that's what it is. It really does feel like, and there isn't like a label, like there's not like a discord or like a danger house, like, you know, your, your sadistic exploits, why die? Like you're self-releasing, these bands are self-releasing their records themselves. You know, there's not really a label that's like, okay, touch and go style. We'll right. put out all your records and we'll handle the distribution. And, and, you know, so yeah, like it doesn't really get its due in the same way some of these other scenes do. Right. I agree a hundred percent with that, you know, and, and there were a lot of good bands in Philly, you know, definitely. Yeah, when did you see the changeover begin to happen to like kind of that younger scene that you're mentioning, like decontrol? Yeah, that like was, exploits? yeah, that's like 1981 was when it really kind of exploded when we did the very first punk fest, you know, and we wanted all local bands on it. So if you were a punk band, you know, we wanted you on it, <clears throat> excuse me. And we had five bands, five dollars, you know, and it was all, it was all local bands. And, you know, Philly had some like, 
they had a lot of eclectic bands that weren't necessarily, you know, they weren't hardcore bands or, you know, even punk, like there was a band called the stick men who were kind of like experimental. And they had, you know, this, this woman who was a visionary, uh, Beth Ann Lehman, who was just incredible. The things when I look back now as a performance artist and she played all these different instruments and stuff, and she was amazing. And there was a band called head cheese who, you know, was, uh, um, almost all female. I think the drummer was male. And, you know, they had like a little hit on WXPN, you know, University of Penn's radio station and stuff. So, you know, it was it was like very fertile for creativity, you know, but I don't know how much it spread out into other areas, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, but there was always something going on. And there was always a band to see when I after I moved into, you know, downtown Philly, like every night you could go probably see a band if you wanted. So it was fun. Was there like a lot of overlap between like, you know, like the more hardcore kind of stuff and that more arty stuff like bands like Ruin, I guess, would have existed in both worlds. But like, yeah, exactly. Would, would like Head Cheese have played with like Why Die or or was that kind of like separate? I can't scenes? remember that they ever did. I, I would say, think they were maybe like though all those bands would play like Omni or the East Side mm. Club. But as far as like the shows that I was doing, the Punk Fest, you know, we didn't really we basically had either punk or hardcore bands playing, you know, or what we considered punk, you know, there was a big kind of art scene, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and that was confusing to me. Like I was jealous of it because, you know, the the head cheese, you know, they'd be up there like, you know, banging on metal play, you know, pots and pans and stuff, you know, and, and, you know, making noise. I wasn't a fan of the music, but I was jealous of the fact that the women had enough guts to be on stage doing it, you know? (laughs) So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how, you know, these scenes kind of happen seemingly on top of each other. A lot of times, like you look at New York and that no wave stuff's happening kind of simultaneously as the hardcore scenes happening, but there is that kind of divide between the, the stuff that's like really, truly, I guess, gritty from the streets punk and the stuff that's more university arty stuff that's also kind of happening at the same time like it seems to happen over and over again in every city yeah i mean we you know we had pure hell you know and and they were you know to me one of the you know the quintessential punk band the kind of the ones that launched it you know Mm -hmm. they were, you know, they were Philadelphia and they were at least, you know, were able to get records out and tour and, you know, they went to England and everything. And, you know, Kenny lived in my building and, you know, I was just like, wow, I can't believe this guy is on the elevator with me. (laughs) (laughs) They they are a band that does not get their due. Like you're saying, they are, they're with Sid Vicious. They're backing up Sid Vicious when he's in New York, you know, like they're, they are like that band and, yeah, like, the, you know, they did get those records out. They got to England, but, like, it doesn't seem like they had canonized in the way they should. For No, they should be. They, they absolutely should be. They were an amazing, amazing, pioneering, groundbreaking band. Mm-hmm. Did they, were they still around by the time, like, Sadistic Exploits and all that? Or they were already gone by that point, right? No, they, they, had, they had gone to England and come back. And I don't think at that point they were a viable band. Like, I don't think they were playing together at that time. I know they might, I think they reformed later. But at, the, mm-hmm. at that time, like, they weren't playing anywhere. Like, I never saw them live. Uh, much to my dismay, you know. So, well, I yeah. think they were do- they were doing something a couple years ago with Jackal yeah. for singing for him too, oh, which is yeah, like, yeah. Uh, like he's to me, he's one of the greatest front people ever. Like his voice is just so over the top. I love it. I love it that you say that because that dude is one of the coolest human beings yes. 
on earth. And when he came into the, when he came onto the scene, I was like, who is this guy? You know, like I was like a little scared of him, you know, he's, you know, first one in the pit, you know, first one off the stage, you know, so much energy, just exuding coolness and still is to this day. Like we have punk rock reunions in Philadelphia from time to time. And, you know, I got to see him recently and reconnect and, oh my God, I love that dude. God, I love that dude. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. He was on uh, the live in Philadelphia episode that I did and I don't know, just, it just made it. Cause like that, that, that's a legend. And like you're saying, like, you know, not to keep reiterating it, but like these Philadelphia bands don't get, you know, like SSD and, and Boston, like that's canonized and minor threat and D- DC, that stuff's canonized, you know, but like this Philadelphia stuff, like a lot of it's still pretty obscure. Like I guess the wide eyes has been reissued, but sadistic exploits, like it's just that, thank goodness you sold that ring or there'd be no documentation of that thing still. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, that we're, you know, people didn't have money. We couldn't make records, couldn't really tour. I mean, the furthest when I was involved with statistic exploits that we went was New York. We used to go up to New York a lot and play, you know, and I don't think, you know, we played anywhere else. You know, there were no, you nobody got, no one had a van. I don't even know how we, we used to get our, <laughs> I don't know how we got our equipment to, to New York. I don't yeah. know if we, uh, borrowed equipment i don't remember but i can tell you no one had a nice van you know to Mm -hmm. do it no Mm -hmm. and i think it's now it's even you know like even if a band doesn't have as much money like the whole procedure is so outlined at this point like what do you do if you're a band going out of town like you know like these things were being figured out around 81 or 82 like it's pre this stuff really being established as like a a way of doing things. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, of course, now it's so easy with computers and stuff. Like I was just reading this article in the New Yorker about something called hyper pop and like this 15 year old kid in North Carolina, like has this huge hit on, you know, in hyper pop. I'm like, what is it? You know, (laughs) I was looking it up, you know? (laughs) Well, I think it's fascinating now, like on the show, talking to people that are, it's decentralized. Like you're not geographically, Right. limited in where your scene's going to be you're limited to whoever you can find on the internet so you don't have like the philadelphia scene or the toronto scene where i'm from like you now have just i'm part of this scene and it's and it's global right and genre is is almost out the window as well you know? yeah yeah the punk is it is it you know what is it you know i don't yeah. know yeah like it's amazing when you think about like how how established these divisions were at one point between these genres, like you're saying the art punk and the, and the hardcore punk, like in the grand scheme of things, they're very close together in what they're both trying to do. But like these divisions were so established at one point and it it doesn't seem to be the same way now with these kids. Yeah. I got it. I got a a call from an interviewer from USA today, you know, and they're like, we want to interview you about pop punk. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, you know? And then I'm like, what the hell is pop punk, you know? <laughs> I'm like on the computer, like, looking it up, you know? And, uh, you know, there's all these, you know, these bands, you know, that hold this whole Travis Barker influence and, you know, all these people that are putting out pop punk that aren't really punk, you know, mm-hmm. but they're churning it out. So, yeah, genre's out the door and everybody's, everyone's having fun. So that's good. That's good with me. Yeah. And I think with punk though, it is weird how you can somehow connect it all back, right? Like it all does 
weirdly connect back. Like even pop punk, like without the dead milkman, I don't think it'd be the same sort of thing. You know, it wouldn't, I don't know if that sense of humor would have been there, even though it's so far removed from what they were doing at this point. Like, I just think like it's all in there on some, at some level. Right. I, and I, and I love that, you know, I love that about music in general that everybody, you know, takes and, it becomes mutates and, you know, becomes mm-hmm. this new cool thing. And it's, it's fun. Uh, what were your takes on some of the other scenes that you were seeing around that time? Like going to like DC and, and New York, because it was so regional and it is so influenced by like what the people in these places were like. Yeah. So when I was going to New York, New York didn't really have a hardcore scene. The only hardcore band that was playing at the time was probably the mob, you know, and of mm. course the, the bad brains, you know, had moved to New York and uh, Crucial Truth, you know, and so but there were a lot of really good kind of what I considered punk bands like uh, Kraut, who I loved and um, Heart Attack and and uh, Urban Waste and, you know, bands like that, which I kind of saw maybe as a little more Reagan youth, you know, a little more punk, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, those scenes I could just, you know, I can remember going to New York the first time when the exploits played and, uh, you know, being scared, you know, are they going to like us? Are they, you know, what's, what are they going to be like? And, you know, the first, you know, three people I meet are, you know, Jimmy G and John Watson, who was the first singer of Agnostic Front and Chris Cherokee, who sang for Cause for Alarm. And they just embraced us, man. They became like, they became like my brothers. Like, I love those guys to this day. You know, I mean, Chris has passed on, but like, I still keep in touch with them all, you know, and the women on the scene were great. And it was just, you know, then New York became kind of like our, you know, our second home. And we were up there all the time. It's an hour and a half on the train or driving, you know, so if something wasn't happening in Philly, we went to New York. And so the New York scene was really vibrant and, you know, fun to play and stuff. Um, We always had a good time there. And then DC, I didn't get to go to um, until after I, I met Al, but, you know, you know, you read the story in my book about when SOA came and played with black flag and there was like a huge riot and I got hit in the head by a DC skin. So I was like, I hate DC, you know, (laughs) and I never want to go there because they're a bunch of Neanderthals. And like, you know, I loved minor threat and I loved SOA, but like, I didn't want to go there because I didn't think their scene was, you know, the way ours was. And so, well, not that that particular show is a good indication of welcoming, but you know, I, I didn't. And it wasn't until um, I met Al in 82. And then we went down to I think it was in Baltimore, Minor Threat played and I met Ian and stuff. And then, you know, I got to see more of the D.C. scene. And, and you know, it was, of course, great, you know, but I didn't know. That. And the same with Boston. The weird thing about Boston that freaked me out when I moved here was that shows were at five o'clock. You know, all the shows in Philly were at night, you know, yeah. and then, you know, there it was like 5 p.m. And I was like, this is weird. You know, <laughs> like yeah. it was it was an adjustment for me, you know, because I was used to things being nocturnal and they weren't in Boston at all. It was like broad daylight, you know, and uh, but their scene was big and all the bands were good. Like all the Boston bands were good. Like no matter which band you saw, whether it was Gangrene or Jerry's Kids or FUs or whoever you saw, DYS, they were good. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. it, was, it was really fun. And then of course, all the good bands came through as well. So um, they had a great scene. 
I've kind of heard it said that like, you know, like Boston and DC were doing something different than what I guess New York and Philadelphia were doing where like, those were like hardcore scenes. Whereas what was happening in New York was more of a punk scene and it was really militarized by the arrival of DC people and Boston people coming to shows and, uh, New York people still deny this, but like beating people up in New York, which is something that also comes up on the show time and time again. Like, yeah, you know, that is so mythologized, you know, I mean, I know when Al and, and, you know, and, and I don't want to speak for Al, but I know when his, you know, when he in Boston went down to like a seven to see the bad brains, it was still very much a leather jacket, you know, makeup y kind of punk scene. Mm-hmm. And they immediately embraced the physicality that the bad brains brought to a show, you know, and they were they just kind of went wild. You know, that being said, there were not a lot of New York hard kids probably there that, you know, like it didn't that, you know, this whole like Boston it just, to me, it was way overblown. You know, if you talk to, you know, talk to Vinny Stigma and, and Roger, Vinny, Vinny counts Al as his favorite guitarist, you know, and, and, and Roger says the kids will have their say first record is one of his favorites, you know, like, I think it was super, super overblown, you know, um, I never, every time SSD Control played New York, they were so well received and it was insane, you know, mm-hmm. like the shows were great towards the, you know, maybe like 84 when I remember one time they played rock hotel and, you know, some, some Boston kids were drunk and something had ha- happened at CBGB's with like a joke Boston band early in the day that spilled over to rock hotel. And there was definitely some tension in the air that night. And I think like I remember Jonathan Anastas from DYS saying, like, I got punched in the face, you know, and I was like, I didn't know. I didn't know about that until like five years ago. You know, <laughs> like I, I'm like, you know, if, if no one threw a bomb at you and no one was arrested and no one got, you know, 45 stitches in their head, like I don't, it doesn't count to me, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> so you got punched in the face like, OK, <laughs> You know, like that's not a big deal to me. You know, like I've been in, you know, really dangerous situations. And so a little scuffle at a show. Wow. You know, that's okay. But that's why we did the Buff Hall show um, in when, when I still lived in Philly, because there, you know, we we sensed Allison and and the other people that were involved with the BYO. We sensed that maybe there was there's starting to be some inner city schisms, you know. So we said we're going to have this hardcore love fest, and we're going to bring Minor Threat from DC, you know, SSD Control from Boston, Agnostic Front from New York, and then uh, a Flag of Democracy and Crib Death from Philadelphia. And we're going to play in Camden, New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, you know, like we were kids, we had lost perspective, you know, I don't know. (laughs) But what a legendary bill. Like, it's amazing to kind of think like these were just your friends at the time. You're just putting this on for local scenes but this thing is so storied like that show is like one of those shows that people around the world know about yeah and i'm really so proud to have been associated with it and you know despite the craziness of you know 
Ian getting hit by a car and Al's van getting smashed and and yeah. you know, having to turn to the ghetto riders to be security for the night, you know, like despite all that, every band brought their A game. And I don't know if it was the fear, the tension, everything. It just spilled over on stage. And I'm really psyched that there's at least video of SSD control set and, and minor threat set mm -hmm. because no one would believe it unless you saw it, you know, yeah. Yeah. like th those videos, you know, I still watch them to this day and I'm like, damn, that was fun. You know, they, those bands were great. And the energy in the room was intense. Yeah. You know? I love it. Like those are like the three bands kind of that carry, not carry their scene because like, obviously all these scenes, but like, you know, like those are three bands that were definitely like table for their scene. Would you say FOD kind of occupies almost the same space for Philadelphia? Like who would be the band for Philadelphia? That would be like the agnostic front of the minor threat or today, like looking back, Looking back, yeah, like who would you yeah, say? Looking would back, I, you know, maybe Why Die, maybe Ruin. Yeah, you know, those bands are are pretty um, are pretty storied. FOD, that was their that was their first show. You know, when they played, <laughs> football. you know, not a bad first show, right? No, not pretty and, good. Uh, and Agnostic Front, it, it was if it was like it wasn't their first show, but maybe it was like their third or fourth, you know, and John Watson was still singing for them. You oh know? yeah. It's before Roger started singing. Yeah. Way before Roger. Yeah, started that's singing. right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was very early, early on, you know, and, and so I think, I don't know, I think maybe even rabies might've been drumming. I can't remember mm -hmm. who, you know, it was, um, you know, it was very, very early on in their career, but they were our friends, you know, so yeah. we wanted them on the bill because they were our buddies, you know, and um, what a night, you know, and that also the, the night my parents met Al for the first time, you know? <laughs> which is just crazy, you know, oh my God. So like a personally significant night and also a very significant night in the history of rock and roll as well. So. I think so. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I, I just knew, you know, the van was smashed and I just knew my dad would know what to do. You know? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was like, well, I don't know what we're going to do here, you know, and, and he did and he handled everything. You know, he was good. My dad was really tough and he was really strict. But man, you know, if you needed him, he had that Marine Corps. I'll take care of it, you know, and he did. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's it's funny like how you know this is like music of teenagers and you, you talk about this in this book like how significant this scene was for giving young people a space and a place to have voice but like you know here we are all these years later essentially still like obsessing over the music of teenagers you know like yeah. this, this podcast is about the music that was done by people 17 to 30. I totally get that and that's why when I wrote the book I was like why am I still talking about hardcore mm -hmm. 40 years later? You know, I've gone on, I, you know, I left hardcore like 85, you know, and I've had a career and, you know, I've done all these things that like, why am I always going back? And that's why I talked to Ian because I knew he was still in the scene, you know, and, uh, you know, maybe not hardcore, but still in music. And I wanted him to help frame the book for me, you know, and basically for me as a teacher, Punk rock and hardcore has informed every part of my teaching practice. And I believe 100% it's the reason why I am successful as a teacher, you know? And, and once, you know, I won a couple of awards and people would say, you know, like, oh, what makes you a good teacher? And, you know, after I thought about it, you know, really deeply, I was like, punk rock makes me a good teacher, <laughs> you know? Because it helps me connect with my alienated and marginalized teen 
it's because I was one, you know, I'm very different from my students, you know, and I grew up with a great deal of privilege, but I remember what it was like not feeling ownership in my school and not feeling empowered with what I was learning. And it also made me kind of fearless, you know, and, and in my first years of teaching, I, you know, I, there were a lot of gangs in my school and I did a lot of gang outreach and I was never afraid, you know, people were like, aren't you afraid? I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, because of everything that I experienced in Philadelphia, you know, like, yeah. um, and so it really helped me. And it also, you know, maybe to this day question authority and, and to create assignments that help my students like think independently, you know, and so it's the whole cornerstone of my practice. And so, yeah, punk rock was great. Yeah, like it is a real, and that's the one thing that I think, you know, kids need now more than ever is the fact that you can create your own world. Like, this is the tools that you can kind of use, and you could still like all these things. You can go in and put on your own show now. Like maybe not right now, but when right. things change, but you'll be able to put shows on again. You'll be able to like, you know, you don't have to rely, especially in this world where we're so corporately involved on every level now. Like this is like the antidote to. All to all that and it's still works. I love it and I love that and I you know I don't know if you know uh, Dominic and Samantha who do uh bad music taste podcast mm. they were like the second podcast I did and they're like 13 they're in freaking middle school yeah you know and I love it you know they're just you know they decided during the pandemic to use their time wisely and start their own podcast and so to me you know that's really really cool like when my when I hear my students you know doing something out of the norm. You know, I remember even like, you know, one time a, a kid came in and she was like, I, I'm sorry, I wasn't here yesterday. You know, my friend and I went down to New York and we went to a show and I was like, good for you. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, you know, or, or, you know, I had, a, I had a student one time who uh, she was really good at taking tickets for big shows and turning her ticket into saying that she was in the pit, you know, and, and she was like, Oh, miss, you're going to think awful of me. And I was like, no, <laughs> you have no idea what I've seen. No, I kind of think that's cool. Could you do that for me when I go to, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, you know, I like to see my kids, you know, stretching into their horizons and stuff, you know, it's harder for them too, because they're on the electronic leash, you know, mm -hmm. and have that, you know, I could say I'm here, mom, you know, and they would have no way of knowing. <laughs> so, Well, it's funny, like, talking to people now like i'm a parent i've got a 12 year old as my oldest and like talking to people on here and how many of them were going to shows at 12 years old like i was going to shows by the time i was 13 but my little brother was 11 and i was bringing him to shows like i couldn't imagine that happening now with the mic yeah, like, no, it's no. changed we're so much stricter now i think yeah absolutely you know i was i was uh listening to one of your podcasts with the the, the lunatics girl you know and she was yeah. saying she was out at, at 12 years old, you know, and I was like, I couldn't have done. I mean, I, I was out at 15, but I couldn't have done it at 12. But, you know, my parents had no idea what was going on. And even like years, you know, maybe like five, six years ago, um, some people were making a documentary about Philly punk and hardcore. And they came to my dad's house and, and you know, filmed me and he was supposed to be mall walking. He was, you know, he's like 85 at the time, you know, and yeah. And uh, he came home early and he was like, you know, why are they interviewing you? You know, and I was like, well, because, you know, Dad, I did some shows and managed some bands. And he was like, well, I never knew anything like anything like that was going on. And I was like, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's right, Dad. You didn't know anything about it. You know, neither. Sadly, neither of my parents lived to see the book, but it's dedicated to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I don't know whether they would be proud or horrified. So, <laughs> well, there is like, uh, you know, like a real power to subversion of what's going on, right? Like there is like. It was, especially at that time, like so underground, like we live in a post Green Day, post Nirvana world where like SSD shirts were on like Saturday Night Live, you know, or like like it's a different kind of world than where it was something completely underground and completely adversarial to people's way of life. Like post Charles Manson, punk is really the first real youth rebellion since the hippies. Yeah, I mean, it was completely counterculture. And I, you know, again, that's one of the things I loved about it. Because, you know, again, I'm coming up in the disco era, you know, and um, to me, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of disco that I like. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I kind of didn't, you know, that whole scene to me was just a little too much about things that I wasn't interested in, like, you know, drugs and you know things like that you know and so um having punk rock as you know rebelling against conformity and you know things like that i found it a a great doorway into a new world and it also introduced me you know i grew up in a upper middle class suburb where you know maybe there was a handful of people of color at my school and when i got involved with punk rock i was meeting people from you know, everywhere, you know, and, and, and of, you know, people of color. And, you know, one of our good friends was a a Vietnamese refugee and, you know, that expanded my world and my horizons. And, and I really, you know, I loved it. It was great. Mm -hmm. Well, I think Philadelphia, like it was a, a lot more diverse, like looking at the pictures of kids at the shows, looking at the makeup of bands, like it wasn't as, necessarily white homogeneous uh suburban as like a lot of other scenes especially as hardcore would become as time would go on you know like it it really does feel like philadelphia at that point did reflect a lot more of the diversity the lyrics are kind of talking about in punk rock yeah i i definitely agree with that you know i i love that about philadelphia and that was you know one of the reasons that i you know again wrote the book because reflecting back you know that was um, being introduced to a diverse and multicultural world at that age was really important to me, you know, mm-hmm. and I love that about Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a very diverse place and um, it was cool to kind of come up that way and, and you know, have my eyes opened in a way that I needed to have them open. Yeah. I think it's also punk just opens your eyes, not just in terms of, you know, like issues of race, but like issues of class, like issues of sexuality, like it just feels like, you know, and, and I'm getting into it later, but like even getting into it when I got into it, it's still stuff that the world's catching up to now that we're discussing at shows or are being written about in fanzines or, or being sung about in lyrics or talked about on stage. Like it is, I don't want to say like an advanced thing, but it is advanced. Like we are talking about stuff that the world's not caught up to at a much younger age. Yeah, I mean, I never learned anything about government, politics, you know, any, I couldn't have told you the difference between a Democrat or Republican when I get graduated from high school. I got my education about that through bands like The Clash, Crass, Dead Kennedys, and MDC. Mm-hmm. You know, I was woefully ignorant, you know, I had no idea. And that's where I learned, 
you know, that was, you know, and I can remember, you know, um, researching the stuff to put in the, in the sadistic exploits, you know, the, the insert thing and, and, you know, being in the library, reading like Hannah Arendt and, you know, and saying like, wow, I'm so stupid. I don't know. I'm so ignorant, you know, and I made a vow right then that I would go back to school (laughs) so that I, you know, could have these conversations with people because I didn't know, you know, I didn't know. And I felt bad that I didn't know. But you were already hip to like Warhol and stuff, right? Yeah, I love Dandy Warhol. I stalked that poor man. All I love that part of your book. Photos. Oh my gosh, I love that <laughs> the photos and stuff and the stories about that too. Yeah, he like, was always super nice to me, you know, um, and and very very cool. Um, but yeah, I did kind of, you know, I was kind of a stalker to him because I thought he was great. You know, I read his books and and I used to read Interview Magazine, and I thought him and Fran Lebowitz, like if I could have run off and been at the factory i i would have you know but i yeah. didn't have quite enough guts to do that <laughs> and that's also just like that is the precursor to punk rock right there too in 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 its way you always hear that we well, don't always hear but I, i've heard a couple times that people have interesting stories and good stories about interacting with warhol but you don't really hear that about lou reed you don't hear about- no you know i mean i loved lou reed and and uh but I, you know, I saw him a couple times, and if he was a in a bad mood, you felt it when he was on stage. Yeah, I think yeah. you can still feel it in videos when you watch the videos of him too. Yeah, you could you could tell that he was, you know, he was in a bad mood, and I know he was rude to one of my friends one time. I never had any interactions with him, but I did, you know, I did love his music. So yeah. It's interesting, too, because it is, you know, he's obviously like a direct precursor and much in the same way that Iggy Pop is, mm-hmm. yet both of them, and, and Bowie in the same way, it's so much about persona, and it's so much about that wall that you're putting up between you and the people that enjoy the art that you create. And in like with artists like the Ramones and even with Patti Smith, like there's a lot more of sort of like trying to chip that away yeah. when punk rock comes in. Bowie was really great about that in Philadelphia. Bowie loved Philadelphia and the Sigma kids, you know, the ones that camped out in front of uh, uh, Sigma Sound Studios when he was um, when he was making that record to the point where he went down and let them all in and hear the record, you know, and my friend Patty Brett, you know, um, you know, there's pictures of her with Bowie. She was like my idol. And, you know, I tell the story in the book where you can hear her name and all the young dudes on the David Live record, you know, yeah, um, where her friend, you know, hit her chair and then she smacked him and he yelled Pat in the middle of it. You, you know, you can hear it loud. And I always thought it when I before I really knew the story, I always thought it was Bowie speaking to her. I didn't realize it was somebody in the audience yelling, <laughs> her. you know, but like. He he did tear down that wall in Philadelphia and he always loved Philadelphia and he always loved the Sigma kids and was mm. really good to him. But Lou, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Lou was a little <laughs> Lou was a little different. Yeah, no, I think I think it's uh it takes all kinds, right? Of these types right. of personality things. But it's also interesting how you have that same sort of cult of personality start happening in punk rock. Like you brought up the Dead Kennedys. It happens with Jello Biafra really early, and obviously it's happened with Ian Mackay now and like where you know it's not necessarily these people making themselves into these characters like people kind of put this on them you know al as well obviously like you know these people become larger than life to to people that don't necessarily know yeah i mean i get like you know now that people know that i'm married to al like i'll get people 
they go through me to try to like, get <laughs> you know, and some of the things they say, I'm like, where did you come up with that? You know, like the, the stories about who Al is and, you know, I mean, Al's like a, a, a really nice guy, you know, and, mm. and he's also a brilliant man, you know, he was an engineer and tested jet engines and, you know, he sort of has this kind of, you know, hockey jock persona that people don't see through Mm -hmm. unless they talk to him and they, you know, they get to meet him. And so I do think like social media broke down some of those walls when, you know, people follow you on Facebook and they get to know like who you are a little bit, you know, but um, yes, he played hockey, you know, but there's a little bit more to him than that. Yeah. And so it's funny. Well, it's like you were saying with that, um, with Boston and and New York, the talk of that beef between the two cities, you know, and like it almost, this stuff becomes so mythologized that it takes on a life of its own where it can be completely removed from the actual reality now, where it's just like the story. Cause we, we, it's been passed down from a time before there was an internet for so long, just these oral history tales that have increased in size as they've been told time and time again. And I think there was some schisms later on with other Boston bands and and New York bands, like, you know, with, I don't even want to get into name and names, but. (laughs) You don't have to, I think we know. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, that there was some, some real stuff that happened, but that was like long after we were, you know, that we were out of the scene, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and recently I posted, um, Nick Martin, you know, who's, you know, his father's the artist, Bryce Martin. And he used to make these hand painted pins that were really neat. And I had one that he did that said, kill anyone with a beer in hand, because that was before SSD control played with a minor threat in MDC at Irving Plaza choke and the Boston crew jumped on stage and they did this like little kind of like chant thing, you know, kill anybody with a beer in a hand. And then they did fall out and they all jumped into the crowd, you know, and it was funny, like totally lighthearted, funny. So I posted the pin and people just kind of went crazy, you know, they're like, wow, you know, people died because of this and, you know, and like all this craziness. And and then somebody had it taken down because it violated community. <laughs> on instagram you know i was so pissed yeah put it in my stories and they didn't get it there you know but i was like come on you know like this was a joke i you know and i said that i was like i will give you a thousand dollars for every person you ever find that ever had like a beer knocked out of their hand or or had anybody say anything to them because they were drinking because it just didn't happen it just did not happen. I was there, you know, mm-hmm. but I do have a lot of guys, men, you know, born in 1985, 1990, telling me what happened at those shows, you know, because as a woman, I possibly couldn't possibly know a woman who was there, you know? Well, and, and once again, I'm not trying to refute and I'm definitely not trying to be one of those dudes with this at all, but I, I've definitely heard from some of the younger people, how intimidating, that Boston stuff was and like maybe they didn't see the humor because they were younger but like Phelps and and choke and like how these guys were you know to the to the wave of kids that were maybe like the next generation below these guys were terrifying when they hit the pit because it was organized that's the truth they you know Boston always had a super physical scene 
not a violent scene, a physical scene. And mm -hmm. I think there's a difference, you know? And mm -hmm. so if you were going to go into the pay, like you had to be, you know, you had to be, you know, prepared, you know? And I mean, I think New York had a, had a pretty physical scene after a while too. And Philadelphia definitely did, you know, but, um, you know, there, there was like a sort of hockey mentality, you know, and I remember, when I first, you know, moved here, I think it was a Misfits show or something that I went to. And I was like, wow, you know, that's pretty intense. I don't know that I would jump in there right now, you know? Mm. Um, and so, but it wasn't mean spirited in any way. And it wasn't, you know, extremely violent. Um, and, and I, you know, I tell people that back then the, the, um, the real, um, threats to the scene were not in the scene. They were cops and they were locals. And that's who caused all the violence and, and horror at our shows were cops and locals. And, you know, it was, a, it was scary, you know, to, to, you know, to have riots and have bombs thrown at you and stuff, you know, like that to me was, you know, it wasn't in the scene where I was worried. And so um, I, I, you know, I heard about that years later when people were like, oh, well, you know, straight edge people used to beat us up, you know? And I was, yeah. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> it, it's amazing how parallel that is almost to what happens in California, where people always talk about the Los Angeles scene. And then when all the beach kids came in um, and just how much more it got violent over time. But it's like, it's like you're saying, it's also these external forces like, police and outside violence that's making kids more militant like if you're a group of kids and you're getting fucked with by just other peers for being in a punk eventually you're going to you know toughen up and and have to you know gang up just to be able to stand up for yourself yeah and that and you know that is that is absolutely the truth and i always felt like you know when i you know, and Ian and I talked about that and he said, it's like, it's like when your parent, you know, your parents tell you they used to walk 10 miles through the snow to get to school. The message wasn't the snow or the walk. It was that, you know, school was important. And for us, it wasn't the bombs or the cops or the locals, you know, it wasn't those crazy stories. It was the fact that the music was that important to us that we quite frankly, risked our lives to see it. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like we did. And it was, almost always worth it yeah no definitely it's it's a uh it's a lot more of a struggle in a pre-alternative nation to to be involved in this stuff like it, it took effort yeah it did it definitely did you know you never knew what was gonna what was gonna happen you know when i started writing the book and telling those stories you know 40 years later it was kind of like oh my god like this doesn't even like if I was reading this, I would be like, this couldn't have happened. <laughs> All this crazy stuff couldn't have happened in one weekend, you know, like when you look at that dead Kennedy's weekend, you know, and it's Staten Island, you know, we go to see the dead Kennedy's SSD DOA and there's a riot, you know, and then the next night we go to see the dead Kennedy's. And, you know, Saturday night and they throw a bomb at us. And then the next night I go to see the dead Kennedy's again, I do a stage dive and like completely, get it, you know, my head smashed in, you know, and, mm. and that was a weekend, you know, and, you know, when I'm writing it, I'm like, people aren't even going to believe this, you know, it, but back then, you know, that was Tuesday night. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. And it's amazing how, like, you know, like how many weekends have gone by in the pandemic that we can never remember, but like, there are these weekends where you went and saw, 
you know, like in this case, three historic shows, three landmark shows. It could be three any shows. And the fact that, like, this is a scene that's so vibrant that you're willing to go out every single night. And because it's so vibrant, you carry these memories for your whole life afterwards. Right. They were they were hugely influential on the person that I became, you know, 100 percent. And, you know, I teach in a low income school. And so almost everything I do is do it yourself. You know, mm-hmm. like if I want extra books for my classroom, I have to get them. If I want to go on field trips, I have to figure out how to make that happen. You know, if I want to have guest speakers, I've got to, you know, fundraise for it. And I'm so lucky because, you know, who who funds half my stuff? Punk rock friends. You know, like I just put something up. Um, I wanted, uh, you know, school supplies, back to school supplies, because, you know, my kids aren't going to have them and pens and pencils and stuff like that. I put it up on Facebook through Donors Choose, which is a platform that, you know, get teachers things that they need. It was up for eight minutes and completely funded over $300, you know, Um, and it was a woman who I met through Women of the Pit, which is a Facebook group for women only, you know, who are involved in punk and hardcore. And she she funded the whole thing, you know, and then all these all these other punks are writing on there. Well, geez, I missed it. You know, like, how can I help? You know, like that to me is so freaking heartwarming. You know, Mm -hmm. it's it's unbelievable, you know, that that people will go out of their way to help my classroom like that. So I took my kids twice to New York, all expense paid, taking a bus down, you know, seeing a show, you know, going on a boat trip and everything. And um, all completely funded by friends and former students and punk rock people. Yeah. Like it really does feel like, you know, maybe it's because I spent my whole life in this scene and I haven't known anything else, but it does feel like one of the few places where, you do retain that community. Like I know I could go to just about Uh any city in the world and, and check in with some punk people and have somewhere to stay, you know, or like have people to hang out with or like, and that's just because I'm part of this community where we all like aggressive music. And I love that, you know, I I'm trying to plan a, like a a little book tour, you know, Mm -hmm. and you know, so what do I do? Like I call my friends, you know, and, and, you know, Joe Harcourt down in Philly who I've never met you know, was like, call me, like, here's, here's what we're going to do. You know, yeah. and it, was, it was amazing. You know, he doesn't even know me. And he was like, ready to help me. You know, that's amazing to me. Yeah. And it's a lineage, right? Like you can trace back, you know, the, the people in Philadelphia now doing shows to where sadistic exploits and you doing their, their record and managing them. Like from what I've been told, that's like the first hardcore band in Philadelphia. And there's still like a direct lineage from people to what's happening today. Like there's very few scenes that I can think of that have that, you know, uh, relationship throughout history. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's exactly what Joe said. He said, you know, uh, Joe McKay said, well, maybe if there, you know, there wasn't Nancy exploit, there wouldn't be Joe McKay now, you know, Joe Harper, you know, and I'm like, Oh, I think there would be, but you know, (laughs) I love it that you said it. Well, but it's only a handful of you, you know, like you go back to it and it's really like a few hundred people in all these American cities, major American cities that are building this little tiny DIY scene, right? Like, and that's illustrated by the fact that you all know each other to this day, you know, like it really is. And like, you know, it, it sounds over dramatic, overly dramatic to say like, what, what if one of those people weren't there? But it, it's true. Like if, if one of those people weren't there, like it would throw off the numbers dramatically. Like things probably would be different. I would not be married to Al. Yeah. You know? 
if I did not buy that SSD control record, call Sean Stern in California, you know, to start the BYO, have the band come down and play, it would, you know, no, no, my life would be different. Yeah, absolutely. It would, it changes. It's amazing to kind of like, it's almost like a fun van activity to kind of like be like, what happens if this didn't happen? Like what, or what happens if this had happened differently? Like what happens if Philadelphia had had a discord yeah. and like all the, in like circle of shit and all these bands that remained unrecorded had been recorded. Like would that have changed things? Right. The whole butterfly effect, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Nancy, this has been incredible and anytime you want to come back on this show and talk about this stuff i can't even believe i'm on here i mean i've seen the people you've had on your show <laughs> i'm like i am not worthy like how the hell did you know that's been the great surprise of the book you know is that i thought you know i was going to write this book and some friends and relatives and diehard punk rockers would read it and then it kind of just kind of blew up and what a ride and what a fun ride it's been and i get to do stuff like this so it's really fun well, before I let you go, one thing I really wanted to ask you about in regards to the book is like I noticed when I was reading it on the back cover, it says, I believe, young adult nonfiction, I believe, or something like that. Like it's it's very specifically mentions the fact that it's for younger, a youngerish audience. It's for everyone, obviously. Like I love the shit out of it, and I'm not a young person yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. But at the same time, like, did was that a conscious thing that you were like, I want to write this yeah. to my students? I didn't do that. You know, the publisher did that. And I was, you know, I saw it for the first time when the book came out, you know, and I thought mm -hmm. that was really cool. Mm -hmm. I was a little bit worried, you know, like, what is my job going to think about this book? You know, uh, in fact, my nephew actually said to me, he was like, did you make it deliberately PG-13? And I said, well, I didn't really live an R-rated life. Like, I, lived, <laughs> I lived a crazy life, you know, but I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't like, Evan, you know, Steinfeld from, from biohazard, you know, like I wasn't like, I wasn't living that lifestyle, you know? Um, but, you know, I was conscious of it when I was writing it, like, what will my students think? And I did have some students that, you know, um, you know, who really liked me that bought the book. And I was kind of like terrified. What are they going to think? Cause my kids don't really have punk rocks you know, they're not, they like different music. They don't mm -hmm. really like punk rock, you know? And I was, you know, scared, but those that read it loved it. And, oh man, there's nothing more heartwarming than having one of your kids tell you that, you know, your, your book empowered them or made them, you know, I've, I've had some kids, you know, write to me about it and my heart just swells, you know, that they actually got something from it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. And the yeah. fact that it, yeah. it, it, it resonates with an audience that, has nothing to do with this music. As I say with my kid, I want him to read it because I think it's important for people that can't understand the brilliance of why die as well as people that do understand it. Right. Right. Well, if you ever need me to talk to him, I'll, you know, I'm really good with kids. They, <laughs> you know, even now, like, you know, I, I, I do a lot of motivational speaking with teens and stuff. And, and, uh, after five minutes, they're like, yes, you know, <laughs> well, it's great, it's great, you know, and I don't look anything like my students and I'm certainly, you know, way older than them, but there is that, you know, that punk rock thing that keeps me connected to them. Well, part two will be you, me and my eldest child. Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. Good luck. Thank you, Nancy, for coming on the show. And I will take you up on that future conversation with me and uh, my eldest child at some point, or maybe some of the younger ones. We, we never know which one's going to be the wildest kid, but uh, I look forward to having Nancy back for a part two. Once again, I implore you, please grab this book, a fantastic read. 
I'm not holding your coat. And uh, yeah, thank you for coming on the show, Nancy. All right, coming up later on this week on the show, I've been waiting to put this one up for a while and holding it back for some uh, important announcements. And now is the time of a legend, a legend from the mighty DFL who have a brand new EP. So pre-order that EP, Why Are You DFL? But also from the Turned Out of Punk favorites, The Adams. And we finally get to the bottom of this legendary band, The Adams. If you're a longtime listener, you've heard me bring up this band many, many times. And now finally, Monty Messix, the lead singer of The Adams, is here on the show with me. This is a fantastic conversation with an incredible human being. I'm excited for you to hear this one. And that will be coming out later on this week. Uh, Pre-order that uh, new DFL record on Skabam Records now. It's a new EP. It's it's amazing. I've got to hear this thing. So check that out. Well, that's it for the show. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids. We need to help trans people protect themselves. We need to stop hate and violence towards Asian people and people of different faiths and just... Need to knock all this shit off because this isn't political shit. This is just basic human rights stuff. People deserve the right to be free and live their lives. And uh, yeah, just smash na- Nazis, fuck fascism because that shit has got to go. That that is uh, a starting point. You know, we'll go from there. Uh, sign your organ donor cards because you don't need those organs when they come looking for them, and it can help someone. You know, I can speak from a family experience that it can really, you know, change, change lives. So sign those organ donor cards. Remember to uh, try and do something creative, you know, you make your own culture. Doesn't, you don't even have to put something out, you know, just do it for yourself and see how it goes. It'll help you feel better. Speaking of maybe helping you feel better, try meditating. Uh, I didn't believe in it and then I have tried it now and I don't know much about it. So I'm not going to pretend like I'm an expert on this shit at all, but it is working for me. What I'm just using one of those apps and uh, I find it has helped, you know, and I didn't believe in it. So maybe try it for you. Maybe it'll work. Who knows? Uh, get your shot, stay safe. And hopefully I get to hang out and play a show with you soon or hang out and, and be at a show with you soon. Uh, so, so that's it. Thank you for listening. Take care. Bye.